Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. All right, everyone. Hello, 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 and welcome back to episode. Is this 34, Elliot? Yes, we are. I on never, remember, I never remember the numbers. You know, we, it's like, a number. We, it's somewhere in the, in the numbers from you know one to infinity. Well, yeah. I mean, one counts in infinity. But, anyways. Today we're back with a guest. It's been a while. We actually were on her show, what was it, a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was around the holidays, because I yes. remember we were talking about Last of the Mohicans kind of around Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. which was an interesting combo. So somewhere <laughs> in the like winter of 2021. Yes, but this mystery voice is a New York-based performer, filmmaker, voiceover artist, podcaster, and... Speaking of podcasts, our third season of Girl Presses Play comes out this fall, if I do remember correctly. Alana Rafferty, correct. welcome to the Film Detectives. Thank you for being here and thank you for joining uh, um, to talk about films. We have yes. another, uh, another film podcaster. Thank you for having me. This is actually the first time I've been asked to guest star on a podcast, so I'm feeling oh. like very fancy right now. <laughs> well, we appreciate you being here. My allergy-ridden yes, voice for being here. <laughs> Oh, no worries. No worries. Well, to get us started, Alana, um, tell us a little bit about your background and also how you got into podcasting, especially podcasting for movie review and critique. Yeah. So I have been a voracious movie watcher since basically as long as I was old enough to watch films. Um, My grandma always loved to tell the story of when I was four and basically my parents had me start watching TV for like Sesame Street and stuff. I would watch a commercial, memorize it, repeat it verbatim to my grandma, and then run back to the TV (laughs) and learn the next one and start repeating it. So eventually my parents are like, oh, God, she's she's going to be one of those artsy kids. Um, (laughs) But yeah, the podcasting specifically started during the pandemic because I was just kind of getting frustrated and had only, you know, been able to watch so much Netflix and do so many sourdough starters and all of that. And Mm -hmm. My boyfriend suggested that I start a podcast because I do voiceover work. So I had the mic. I had all the gadgets and stuff already. I love talking about film and, you know, it's not super there's not a lot of things keeping you physically or financially from making a podcast. So Mm -hmm. I figured I would just like give it a try. Had nothing else to do like we all did in 2020. And yeah, it's just kind of taken off from there. And I've met some really amazing other podcasters and have really amazing fans and i'm just really excited to see where the rest of my podcasting journey goes i think you you hit the nail on the head with artists especially like we try to figure out ways we can do creative things especially during covid and i feel like a lot of my artist friends started podcasts because you always if you meet an actor or artist or whatever it is i feel like you always hear that you know oh i have a podcast and everybody's like of course you have a podcast. Every actor has a podcast. <laughs> we are in the era the exact of podcasts. Same way. Yeah. yeah, I felt the exact same way about myself. I'm like, of course I'm I'm start I did a sourdough starter. Like I watched all the, you know, Tiger King episodes and now I'm starting a podcast. So I'm literally doing like every 2020 pandemic thing that you're supposed to do at least <laughs> once. Well, thankfully we have the technology that we can do this and communicate with each other and be able to express our viewpoints on some um, really amazing films that are out there and that people have maybe not even heard of and such, you know, like even when we did the last of the Mohicans, I didn't even know that there was an older 
version of Last of the Mohicans. I'm just familiar with the Michael Mann one, you know, so uh, with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. So I got to yeah. tell you, I never heard of these films either. I was <laughs> oh, oh, very don't worry. Surprised. I didn't either. I had so, either. <laughs> it's a funny story. You mentioned this. So Trevor really asked me, like, so how'd you pick these? So you can thank <laughs> Google for this. This is our Google plug here, guys. So you can thank Google for this sponsor because us. I literally was looking for <laughs> films to watch and I, I was going through our list of, you know, prepping things for, you know, new episodes and everything. And I'm going like, okay, well, we haven't done these films and Big Trouble in Little China came up and I, I was like, I've seen that film a lot of times and it's one mm-hmm. of my favorites. And <laughs> Of course, Google gives you the search engine of like, hey, you may like these films. Oh, yeah. People also searched for. And Willem Dafoe's face popped up on this crime noir musical. And I (laughs) was intrigued. That's a good way to put it. I was very intrigued. Uh, It was very early on in Willem Dafoe's uh, career. And wow. (laughs) It was that was that was a journey. Um. So that was the, a journey. And then from that stemmed into somehow Alicia Silverstone's film uh, from 1997, uh, Excess Baggage, directed by Marco Brambia, who also did Demolition Man, popped up, too, because it was just like, oh, crime dramas and stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, again, but this one is not a musical. It's more of a heist uh, kidnapping. You know, she girl basically tries to get herself kidnapped but the kidnapping goes wrong she actually does get actually kidnapped uh by some thugs car thieves uh essentially and then uh chaos ensues trying to get her back and into the arms of her dad but who doesn't really want her that much which is kind of weird so and you never know why yeah exactly yeah you don't it's very it's very just like very subtle, like, oh, you know, hello, well, daughter, Good and to also see you again. Yes. why he has a random <laughs> British accent and yeah. <laughs> she doesn't. And even though she's been like supposedly sent to boarding school and stuff and all this stuff, and but she is a mm-hmm. rebel for sure. And it's a great example of With the like, cause, uh, women's empowerment in a sense because she manipulates men to her will in this film. Alicia Silverstone's amazing in mm-hmm. it. Um, but and then. <laughs> The only thing that I could really see that tied these together was definitely the crime drama noirish aspect of it, and then bikes, lots of bikes, <laughs> bikers. I do, I do also feel like these films are very much of their time periods. Like when you watch Streets mm-hmm. of Fire, the teased hair and the neon, like visually, it actually oh, kind of reminded me a little bit of Burton's Batman film because there's yeah. so many gray tones that they play with in the film. But yeah, I feel like. Streets of Fire was like very 80s. And mm-hmm. the minute they started playing the Dave Matthews song <laughs> in Excess Baggage, I was like, ah, the 90s. Alicia uh, Silverstone crash into me. And, Del- like, and uh, Benicio uh, Del Toro also has uh, the- uh, Baby Del Toro. He, he's, he's also got the, the crazy 90s hairstyle of oh, like Dawson's goodness. Creek. Yep. And I'm going, uh, and he's always sounds like he's drunk in this film. <laughs> and Trevor and I were going like, what is what is he we okay? watched it together we watched it together and we were just commenting the whole time we we're like what what is going on you yeah. know what it is i feel like del toro and silverstone were in two very different movies mm-hmm. and it almost made me wonder if this was one of those films kind of like newsies where 
It started out as one genre, and then the studio tried to cut it into another. <laughs> kind of like Suicide Squad, actually, how like it started out as really dark and edgy mm, and like right. straight action. And then the studio just wanted it to be a comedy because there's Selmore or mm-hmm. something. Because it really did seem like he was doing like a gritty drama and Alicia Silverstone's like crazy share. And Christopher hey. Walken's in it. You oh, yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. And there's like some dark elements to it. I mean, the fact that the father's kind of estranged to his daughter and you know doesn't really believe that she's really kidnapped the whole time and also the fact that uh he hires or brings in his brother who happens to be kind it's never really clear if he's actually a hitman but he kind of comes <laughs> off like he's from another movie and he comes in and christopher mm-hmm. walkett's like uh, hey I'm, I'm here i'm here to help you you got to come back home <laughs> Uh, that's my that's worst. A great Christopher Walken that's Christopher Walken impersonation. Ter- terrible. Totally changed my voice on it's that. It's not terrible. It's yeah. subtle. It's subtle. Hey, yes. well, well, at least in excess baggage, they're not mad 100% of the time. Oh. Like in Streets that's of Fire, true. they just sound angry every time they deliver a line. <laughs> Give me the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> they're just, and they're, they're emotionless too. Like their faces are like, we're going to get them now. <laughs> <laughs> when William Defoe walks out of the fire and he's like, ah, Peter, it's like a, it's like a Green Goblin moment almost. Oh, it's like it, his. I'm so somewhat his of origins. a motorcyclist myself. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> my, yes, and it's it's literally like the precursor to Green Goblin before he actually, you know, grew up and, and oh, became, God, yeah. you know, uh, freaking uh, Osborne. So let's tackle Streets of Fire, directed by Walter Hill. Of all the directors, it's the director of The Warriors, Red Heat, Hard Times, Last Man Standing, and he also produced the Aliens uh, trilogy, uh, quadrilogy, what are we up to? Like five, six alien movies? Uh, He he produced all of them. I don't know, man. He He also did various numbers. He also did, (laughs) he also produced uh, Tales from the Crypt. He also directed some episodes, Tales from the Crypt, the TV show back in the, was it the 90s, I think? And it's literally a rock and roll musical with film noir elements to it it's almost and the soundtrack for this let's dissect the soundtrack it literally the whole time it's like rockabilly 1950s rock pop ish and there's elements of the temptations there's some uh gosh uh i'm I'm, I'm drawing a guitar blondie yeah and Mm -hmm. there's all the it's like an amalgamation of all these different like bands but it's you know the the main character the the main singer Ellen Aim great name by the way uh, <laughs> played by Diane Lane S- Superman's mom and she, <laughs> I'm not making this stuff up guys and literally she gets kidnapped by a biker gang Willem Def- headed by Willem Dafoe's char- uh, character uh, Raven Shattuck and <laughs> the names are amazing guys and then. Apparently, uh, Tom was a yeah. Tom comes in. He's like Tom Cody is this kind of like dashing, very debonair, supposed to be kind of like the Bogart of this film, and gets teamed up with Rick Moranis and Amy Madigan from uh, Field of Dreams, who played the wife of Kevin Costner, and (laughs) a lot of stuff happens, and they have to go try to track down Ellen Aim who's been kidnapped so thoughts guys what what 
How, what do you make of this movie? <laughs> he just goes in thoughts instantly, just name oh, drops boy. all those people. <laughs> uh, I'll let Alana take it away and go ahead, Alana. <laughs> delve in. Okay, this is gonna be weird. At first, I thought it was okay, and then I liked it more after watching Excess Baggage because mm-hmm. both scripts Ooh. just go like all over the place. <laughs> like we're here, we're there, we're north, we're west, we're south. Like mm-hmm. we're go- we're going for a really whiplashy ride. But yep. I feel like Streets of Fire was more fun to I watch, agree. like yeah. the yeah. neon. And I will actually say the cinematography in Streets of Fire is beautiful. Like that yeah. scene where the biker gang walks into the concert hall mm. and the smoke is like illuminating them from the mm-hmm. back. I yeah. thought that was really cool. And like some of the angles, like the extreme close ups of the car wheels and things like that were really fun. Um, yeah, visually, I thought it was more fun. It did kind of remind me of somewhere between like the Burton Batman films and the Schumacher Batman films in terms of how this whatever city we're supposed to be in. Yeah. <laughs> well, was, the sets, uh, the sets are very, probably the ones that they ended up using it for Batman too, because it all Honestly, looks like it's be surprised. on the back lot at Warner Brothers in a sense, or Universal mm-hmm. even. It had that kind of very, because it's supposed to be in a time period not really known to us, but we kind of take it I for, was wondering... And I was like, is it the 40s? Is it the 60s? Is it an it alternate up. universe? Where are right. we going? Well, it pops up that like it's in another time, in another place, in another whatever, whatever the sub, the, they do a lot of things with title cards in this, but in the freeze frames. <laughs> And throughout the, just the freeze frames at the very beginning when they're showing all the title cards, it's like, oh, hold on, wait, there's more people involved with this film. <laughs> we got all these big guys in here. And here's a transition. Oh, and here's a fadeaway. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's amazing. So the fact that they, you know, really, it, it's campy. And then they mm. also, but then there's like some real grunge to it that feels like it's an 80s film because it, with the 80, a lot of 80s films, they had like kind of that campiness to it, but then they also mm-hmm. had something socially to say, and they were kind of a reflection of the culture at the time, as well as the fashion at the time. Oh my God, the fashion in this film <laughs> is very 80s influence, especially with the biker gang. Um, you know, that whole kind of like, do- and, and like the girl dancing on the table, like a dominatrix type of thing. And mm-hmm. I, I love how this film is only PG. And you yeah. know, what? <laughs> it's only PG. Wait, and they, really? It's it, is, it yeah. says PG, and I'm going like this is not this is like rated R uh, type film. Excess <laughs> baggage is PG 13, which is like okay. <laughs> they were very lax back in the day, I guess. The 90s, the 90s uh, are like, yes. hold on, we have a problem. <laughs> but, oh my god! <laughs> it, what you know, in a sense, though, I I was um when I first started watching it, I I felt like it was very much like Starstruck by Gillian Anderson. Which, yes. you know, because with Starstruck, it had that campiness to it, but it knew it was a musical. This film seemed like it was trying <laughs> to be like a musical because the music, as Trevor had said at one point uh, through the film, he said, like, you know, why is the music still going? You know? <laughs> yeah, it never it never stops. The score is there just underneath the whole time. And then they just it's like, what in the what 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 are you doing? And then yeah. then they'll break into like a giant number. In the middle of the film, I remember yeah. she, she <laughs> Diane breaks into a, a a big number in the middle of the film and they're all out in the street. And I'm like, D- D- is this rent? What are we doing here? Are we are we are we <laughs> that, was another, that was another thing. It, it looked like rent too, because it has that kind of feeling of uh gr- like rent basically 
stole a lot of like elements from this film just without the like the crazy uh rockabilly 1950s look and stuff well, so i think i think alana made a really good point it mm-hmm. to me it almost felt like this was after watching both excess baggage and this i i still prefer to excess baggage i don't know i'm just maybe a sucker for those type Ooh, of like interesting little like you know come a rom-com-esque type even though it wasn't fully a rom-com but yeah this felt more like a blockbuster streets of fire feels more like a blockbuster because you have you know all the you have all the shooting you have the explosions you have all this type of stuff you have these big set pieces kind of set up and then excess baggage is more like it's kind of chill there's i mean there are some explosions and things going on but i don't know this felt more like and i guess it maybe is the setting too with it being dark and depressing and mm-hmm. kind of feels very superhero-esque in a way like oh here comes here comes what's his name here comes uh tom into town to take care of all the bad guys and save the girl yeah. and the city and then he's gonna mm-hmm. ride off in the sunset <laughs> well would you say that this film is influenced by like or how is this film re- um influenced by westerns and americana i definitely think it is even Mm -hmm. just the fact that he kind of like shane rolls into town Mm -hmm. rescues the damsel in distress and then just rolls out of town it kind (laughs) of reminded me of i shouldn't say reminded me of but it seemed like it was almost an 80s love letter to like the lone ranger Mm -hmm. or the searchers it almost felt like escape from new york light like, if you were trying to make Escape from New York for 12-year-olds, this would be it. <laughs> just throw some music in. It's good. <laughs> we'll just dumb yeah, down the fe- violence a little bit. Yeah, because I did kind of feel like they were trying to go for somewhat of like a Kurt Russell thing with mm-hmm. Michael Pere, who plays mm. the male lead. And I do actually think that Michael Pere and Diane Lane had better chemistry than Alicia oh, yeah. Silverstone and Del Toro. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, I do feel like they were trying to make Michael Paré something he wasn't, which was Kurt Russell, because no one is Kurt Russell. I love no. Kurt Russell. And I I specifically love like 80s John Carpenter films. Escape Kurt from Russell. New York. Like, Big Tr- yeah. yeah, Escape from New York, Big, Big Trouble Little China. China. Even yeah. that Elvis film that they the did, thing. which was weird. The, thi- oh, the thing. I could spend a whole hour talking about yeah. the thing. But anyway, um, yeah, it did feel like kind of evocative of Westerns. And I mm-hmm. think Walter Hill went on to either EP or direct a bunch of episodes of Deadwood, too, yes. on HBO. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I could like definitely so- see the Western influence here. Yeah, he it's, it's a director that takes from what's come before and is now kind of doing his own shtick on what kind of the modern Western at the time would be because really like film noir and Western kind of, you know, it's that hero that rides into town and tries to save the village. You know, I mean, we see it across all different cultures, you know, in Japan with Kurosawa and seven samurai, we see it also with, uh, you know, the Westerns of Sergio Leone and also, you know, John Ford, for America and and Italy, um, you know, it's it, it's interesting how these archetypes just keep popping up in cinema and such. But well, I think it's a tried and true formula, honestly. Yeah, like, and it I works. Mean, it's, it's something that's yeah. interesting mm-hmm. to watch. You can just change the character, change this the situation, change mm-hmm. your 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 stakes and everything. But the hero's journey, I, I'm sure you've heard of this at some point, Alana. But I forget. It's uh, there's a certain amount of stories. There's like this this thing that's called the. It's like there's only a certain amount of stories you can actually tell. We just keep retelling them with mm-hmm. with different you know yep. s- people and yeah. stuff. And it's like yeah, in this situation, you could put you could put Batman in in the the shoes of where where Tom is at, you know, and he could be 
rescuing, I don't know, whoever it may be. It could be Commissioner Gordon's daughter or Commissioner Gordon mm -hmm. or and he could be dealing with Joker's henchmen. I mean, I mean, you can place any any different character in the situation and see it throughout film history holding mm -hmm. up as a as a theme or as a archetype, I guess you could say that uh, throughout film history. Yeah. Oh yeah. Campbell definitely, Joseph Campbell, I should say knew what he was talking about. Cause you even think of like Jack Sparrow and Pirates of the Caribbean, mm -hmm. Indiana mm -hmm. Jones to kind of a larger extent, like the Lord of the Rings character is mm -hmm. like, they kind of go on their journey, they get rid of the ring and then they move into, I think it's called the West. Basically they move to like a Valhalla style right. place and like leave earth for the humans like pretty much every action adventure fantasy film that you've ever loved follows that very classic hero's journey and i'm sure mm -hmm. if i rewatch this film with like the chart of the journey oh yeah, in yeah my lap, chart be like, there's that yeah. yep there's that and then there's that point too um right. but i kind of liked that Story-wise, it wasn't trying to do anything new because there was mm -hmm. so much like visually and world building <laughs> wise in. going on. I was like, we don't need a complicated story on top of this. Not not with that soundtrack. Oh my gosh. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. At, at one point I was like, is she trying to do kind of a a Diana Ross, Tina Turner amalgamation? And like and, and it just kind of, you know, I I I, I was like kind of just cringing at it and I wanted the music to kind of just stop at one point because it's Oosh. it was a little overload. It was an overload. Fighting words. But oh I, you know, I like the music actually. The funny thing is it's a great example of how music influences how we feel throughout the film, too, because mm -hmm. you're in this like weird lull throughout the film where you know you're you don't know where it's gonna go and it <laughs> It has no real, um, I mean, there's, there's definitely conflict happening, but I, I, I just feel like the music doesn't really grow. And, and I mean, there are like, I would say like the, maybe the first tune is probably like ca the catchy one, but like, oh, it yeah. just kind of the last one. Yeah. And the last one, they're like the bookends, but everything in between is just kind of like a mess <laughs> in my opinion. But <laughs> the, the film is kind of a mess to, yeah. be, to be honest. So it kind of works. Yeah. In my opinion. It's and a fun mess, though. It's a fun mess. Yeah, fun it, mess. it is. A, it's a fun ride. And I see what I did there because the bikes. It's a fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Elliot's Elliot's face palming. I'm I am face double, <laughs> double face palming. Like, there we go. Elliot's face palming. We'll, right add, we'll add the sound effect and post. It's it's okay. Hey, I'm here every week. I'm just I'm imagining a very like classic early Z100 days like like some really ridiculous face plant sound. Yeah, I mean, like I was expecting more even like a Vangelis Blade Runner score to this because the visuals as you said are very beautifully framed beautifully lit and the cinematography I mean the cinematography is amazing on this so when it's coupled with very cheesy music it takes me out of the experience and I feel like I had trouble getting back into it except for probably like you know the fight scene towards the end with between uh, Raven and Tom and you know <laughs> with sledgehammers yes. oh, there's, sound effects. there's a sound fight effects with sledgehammers 
so many edits too. I forget. There's some oh, Liam Neeson edits. film where there's like ten edits of him going over a fence, and it was like that for five straight minutes. Let's get another shot of them going like this. Like, ugh. oh, I know. I was like, wait, where, are they over here now? Oh, he missed. Okay, he's over there. Oh, he's over there now. Oh, okay, I got it. It was, it was, it was glorious. <laughs> One point I want to make. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Why didn't Bill Paxton and the townspeople? Why did they wait so long to get yeah. their guns? Yeah. Why were they all just hanging out? Like, oh, you know. I, I was guess like, yeah, so. they have sledgehammers, but you all have guns. You have like twenty guns <laughs> ready to shoot I, at him. The whole time, I was just like, I'm going like, this reminds me of the scene in Blazing Saddles when they cut across different um, sets. The sets. The and sets the, they're like, colors. oh, well. We didn't have the extras this day, so now we got this whole we got the whole townspeople now at the at that part in the, oh, in the they all just join in. They're like, get them. Okay, we need you guys to fight the bikers now. Okay, and and look really <laughs> tough. Okay, so oh my gosh, and and the sets I mean, just start crossing. <laughs> I, I was getting like a wild hogs vibe from the yeah. from that that last scene. <laughs> if you've seen Wild Hogs, you you'll get it when when oh, they have yeah. the big standoff and uh, where, where I don't even remember what town they're in, but. The the main biker basically goes against uh, who is the one on the that's jousting at the time I can't remember. Blaine uh, anyway. Macy or yeah I I think yeah yeah there was so, the one Macy yeah 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 that is that that actually is yeah that's correct. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention Elliot about what you were saying in regards to how the the music kind of took you out. I think mm -hmm. maybe for you too because you your occupation is. You know, sound. You deal yeah. with sound. You probably uh, notice that yeah. even more than a normal film watcher would do. Yeah. Because you're always talking about scores and stuff when we watch different films. I mean, you're dissecting them and saying, even you were texting me like, oh, she's lip syncing here. Oh, this this is not synced correctly. All this type of stuff. And I'm like, yeah. I, I would have never figured that out. They kept layering her voice. The best was, you know, she's not singing because they have 20 different guys and girls layering the singing over her vocal and it's like where where are these people <laughs> i thought i heard her singing under i actually thought it the was like first Bonnie tune, Raitt right? or something oh, doing yeah. the vocals yeah the first tune you yeah. hear like the vocals and then you hear some <laughs> other singing going on i was like is that like a one of the drummers and they just have like a really high-pitched voice or something it's and the then i realized track. no you can just hear diane link Diane Lane singing kind of sort of because it would look weird if she was just doing like mouthing the lyrics mm -hmm. and they just tried to keep that as low as possible <laughs> and then just like slap the other vocals on it. It was I thought I was going crazy. I'm not yeah. the only one that heard that. Well, that like, makes that's me feel a much better. Interesting effect. <laughs> right. So yeah, it definitely is not a star is born, but it has its <laughs> I nearly spit out my water. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I timed that perfectly. So, so getting to excess baggage, um, we're throwing away that baggage and getting we're, excess yeah, we're baggage. getting new baggage Ooh, now. Oh, such a good segue! Oh, thank so, you, thank segue. you. That's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah. So, a segue into excess baggage, uh, 1997, directed by Marco Brambia. Um, he directed. Demolition Man, and then this film, and then disappeared from really the Hollywood scene. He's now doing 3D uh, video installations and has been doing that for the past, oh gosh, 40 some odd years or so. Interesting. And, uh, or 30 some odd years. Um, I, I can do math, but it's like. <laughs> I can't, so I'm glad you can. <laughs> That's the next one of us. <laughs> so, <I'll be> <laughs> but oh my gosh. So the. Uh, 
yeah, it, it's just amazing that he went from Demolition Man to Excess Baggage and then just stopped after this film. He's like, that's my end. I'm, it's perfect. It's but a masterpiece. What a way to have, I mean, like, he got to work with some really great actors. Mm-hmm. I mean, he also, I'm sure, I, I, Benicio Del Toro is such a kid in this film and it's like the, really the start of his career. Um, why he developed this kind of like interesting vocal uh, sound to him uh, it was very interesting throughout the film. Like he always seemed like he was kind of drunk through the film, but mm-hmm. um, I mean, maybe he was just going for that stylistically, but really the shining star in this is Alicia Silverstone, would you say? Oh, yeah. Because she, you know, had done Blast from the Past, which was one of my favorite films with Brenda Fraser. Um, and, you know, she would then later go to do, you know, Batman and Robin. And we you know that film. And so it's like, you know, and, and before this, she had done Clueless. So she had that very um, America's like every uh, girl next door look. And mm-hmm. in this film, she takes on kind of a less ditzy role and is more manipulative and very cunning in a in a sense because she knows how to manipulate the men around her. I mean, She's you see, independent woman, yeah, which is really mm-hmm. cool to see in nine in nineteen ninety seven. Um, so my my thing was, how does she do this, and also, what are some of the kind of archetype characters characteristics that she takes on of the hero? Mm-hmm. She's not using brute force. She's using more of like her cunning skills and like words. I feel like her words are her are her gun in this film. Every time she picks up the phone and calls her dad, when when she's with when she's with Vincent, she has the ability to basically ruin his life, and she does mm-hmm. it a couple times just with some of the things she says, and then also with him as well. She's not she's not afraid of him. She's never once ever even when he's going to leave her in the wilderness. She's never once afraid. She knows. That in the situation, although she was the victim originally, it's flipped and he is now the victim because he never planned to kidnap her and, you know, go on this crazy journey with her. She she is the one holding all the cards, which is a very different look at, you know, the whole kidnapping thing in general. So I think for, for her, it's her ability with just her words and also the way that she goes about and doesn't really let anybody push her down is the way that she kind of almost reflects tom but it's in a different light yeah i agree i definitely i felt like she was for lack of a better phrase always in the driver's seat in this film and all of the male characters were very much serving her story like it didn't feel like she was subservient to anyone the one thing i was a little uncomfortable with was the suggestions that she may not have been like old enough to be in a relationship with an adult all of the like how old are you? How old are you? And you never got a clear, even if she said like, I'm 20 or something yeah. like that. That was the one time I was like, this is kind of weird that they're su- possibly suggesting she's like a teenager getting well, into one point, a relationship. Doesn't she say she's 12 or something? Yes, she does. Yeah, yeah she's and like, I'm like, 12. And I'm obviously like, she's not 12, but no. I'm like, can we just know you're a legal adult, please? Yeah. And she's drinking like a whole bottle of scotch. <laughs> well, and she oh steals a God. truck. I mean, like, yeah. She, she commits actual crimes. Mm-hmm. I love how the I cops mean, technically, are like, she also commits arson, which is another like giant True. My, and, then, and the funny thing is, they never, he never figures it out that it was her that did it. He never comes to that realization. 
Uh-oh. You're right. I didn't. Yeah, it's put like that how did together. he not know? She was smoking in the garage. Like what? <laughs> Well, I think yeah, Benicio wasn't yeah. really all there in this film. <laughs> the character it was, hit too, you know. It was a little Jack Sparrowy and not mm, in yeah. like a good way. Again, it did really just feel like they were in two different films. I don't know. I couldn't find a lot of behind the scenes stuff about this film, mm-hmm. so I couldn't tell if maybe there was some like creative friction on set or he mm-hmm. Hopefully this wasn't the case, but maybe like he was going through something in real life and was just kind of like showing up, saying his lines and calling it a day or something. Um, But I did think in the beginning that worked really well, just because the characters are supposed to be so different and so not on Mm. the same page and going after like very contradictory things that I thought that friction between the two actors slash characters actually kind of worked in the beginning in the beginning but then when we were supposed to believe that they were falling in love that friction was still there and it didn't really work and you can only play Dave Matthews man so many times (laughs) (laughs) there was definitely a like oh we're trying to make this romantic so we're going to play a bunch of like 90s ballads throw just throw it in there hopefully it sticks throw it in (laughs) I remember Elliot and I were watching it and we were like they're gonna fall they're gonna fall we thought it was gonna happen sooner when they were in the car at the gas station because they kind of planted the the, the seed oh, for yeah. the relationship there mm-hmm. because they kissed because he was just trying to, you know, not look like he was kidnapping her or holding her hostage or anything like that. Oh, but mm-hmm. I was like, oh, they're going to turn this into like he's going to she's going to ultimately feel bad for him and they're going to fall for each other. And I mean, it was it was all right. I love that. Even I love that nobody in this film, even though they had guns and seemed very evil, nobody ever really fe- felt threatening like stick. Uh, Stick and Gus, although they were pretty much our bad guys for the film, mm-hmm. they didn't really feel like they reminded me of kind of like the Home Alone, uh, the the two the two robbers oh, in Home yeah. Alone. Yeah, like they they never yeah. really felt that menacing into my and to me. Nothing. Like felt they're trying to play the film. tough guy role, but not they they really aren't really that menacing. Comp- I thought Walken was more menacing and creepy oh, yeah, in this definitely. film because there's parts where you're going like, did he have like a thing with his niece or did he, you know, do something like sketchy back in the day, like run for the mob or something? It He comes off that way because he knows how, again, he knows how to manipulate. But it in in a sense, though, we see kind of where uh, Alicia Silverstone's character gets the manipulation from Mm -hmm. because she's been around this insane man also her dad too probably (laughs) and her dad too yeah i was wondering if they were going to maybe hint at christopher walken's character being her biological father yeah and her dad her dad like the british guy knowing that and maybe that's why he was so that would have been a twist because that would have made more sense because the act, well, the thing that the dad had like a British accent and was like, don't even look like the daughter, you know, and, and just like hated her. Like yeah. he seemed to really like despise yeah, what did she do? her for no reason. And yeah. the first thought I came up with was like, oh, they both have blue eyes. They're both like mm-hmm. menacing personalities. They both care about each other. Clearly, like I thought maybe it was revealed at some point or was going to be revealed at some point that. Christopher Walken was actually Alicia Silverstone's father. 
Mm-hmm. Which would have checked, I think. Yeah, like her actual dad. And it yeah, that, I think that would have been. I think that would have really given a reinforcement as to why he was mad because we didn't mm-hmm. really get a reason why she was going through this whole. I mean, she wanted attention, but why? Like, what what happened that was so bad that he just completely forgot about his own daughter? I, I just, yeah, I don't get that. Well, we could find out in an ex- excess baggage, more baggage, part two. <laughs> are you are you gonna are you starting to write the script? I'm going to write the script, guys. Dude, okay, and, and, the phone <laughs> and everything. Well, one thing I found out online, I have to verify this, but mm-hmm. one thing that I found online, which was really interesting, was apparently Aaron Sorkin did an uncredited rewrite of the script, oh. like after it had gotten optioned by the studio and they were developing it. Aaron Sorkin did like a brush up of it, and mm. I think that comes through the most in the Walken character. Oh yeah. Because he was very kind of like catchy, had a lot of fun soliloquies. And then when I read that, I was like, oh, that makes sense because he sounds the most kind of like a Sorkin character. Mm-hmm. And I think the most grounded, too, because like her, yeah. his character knows, like has an objective and isn't kind of just floating through the film. I mean, Silverstone's character somewhat has a direct path, but she's kind of just going with the flow and and whatever wherever the journey takes her is where she ends up and she doesn't really care it's almost like that disinterest in life that she kind of brings to the the role in a sense and mm-hmm. you know could care less what happens to her own personal well-being which is kind of interesting and like she's been hurt one too many times and just doesn't really have but in, in a sense though she knows who she is so that's why it's like it flips back and forth all the time and, so, <laughs> and i'm just like oh okay i'm I'm very confused but yeah the walking character really um i felt was very clearly defined as an opposing force to um the others you know to the other characters and such well yeah del, del toro's character is also kind of a lot like uh silverstone's character he's kind of Yes, he has an, a goal and objective, but that kind of all gets thrown away when she blows up his warehouse on everything that he's working for. So he, even though they're at the point where they have to figure out, like, okay, I need to get this money, otherwise I'm going to die, or whatever potential the problem could be. It's that whole, like, you don't have the money? Uh-oh, we're going to get you mm-hmm. type of storyline. Mm-hmm. But he never really feels... It never. I never feel that, like that oh no they got to get it otherwise bad things are going to happen and i think that's just because like the whole you know mood of the film is very kind of light in general and that's with because of both of their performances and how they interact with each other and the fact that with the kidnapping in the first place it wasn't a bad thing because she just when she gets to the warehouse like she gets out of the car and she's so calm i mean yeah she's trying to get out but when he comes back she's like why am i here what are you doing she like and and the way that he like hides behind the pillar and everything it's like it's so comical mm-hmm. right it's like it's it they're like a they're like bonnie and clyde if bonnie and clyde was like a rom-com with the benny hill soundtrack behind it the whole time or something <laughs> right <laughs> pretty much that's pretty much you summed it up <laughs> that like is when he's driving baggage. the car and backing up and going forward and turning around and backing up it's like well it it also kind of mimics her when he leaves her in the middle of the road and she's just walking back and forth. He's like, just will you stop for a minute? <laughs> yeah. You know, so. 
It's I a very different feel from Streets of Fire. And oh, yeah. Streets of Fire is a lot mm-hmm. more serious, a lot grittier. And I think that also has to do with the setting overall and, and our characters. Mm-hmm. This, a lot more, they're out, uh, of course, you know, they're out at night for that one scene when they go to the forest. But otherwise, it's very bright. It looks very inviting. That there's no really, like, grim. Even when the guy gets shot, when Stick gets shot at the end, it's in the arm. So, you know, there, there was no, there's no intention to kill anybody or have anybody get killed or anything. So it's a very lighthearted, even though there are some serious subject matters in the film itself, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. taken very lightheartedly, as opposed to Streets of Fire, where it's like, oh... It's going down. I kind of feel like casting Harry Connick Jr. in any movie. Like, if you oh. turn on a film and Harry Connick Jr. is in it, you know it's going to be kind of a lighthearted, fun time. <laughs> that's what we said, actually, when he popped up on screen. And you're like, of course he's oh, the Oh, that's boss. hilarious. I, and I was hoping that he was actually going to sing in this, because he, he's a great singer and, and mm-hmm. such. And I'm surprised he wasn't, like, one of the singers at the nightclub that Ellen's at. And it's... Um, <laughs> You know, it's kind of a lost opportunity there, but you know, when the credits roll, it's just it's those two getting married and he's singing at their wedding or something. Oh (laughs) yes, sticks in the background like holding his shoulder because he's got like the the wound. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh. There we go. That's part two. The two films together. Yes. There you go. There you go. Oh my god. I just wrote the ending for part two of Excessive Baggage, but the baggage continues. He does play a great car salesman. That's just he does like he really in, in, does. in excess baggage, and he's like perfect to contrast uh, Benicio del Toro's character of Vincent because he's kind of more the stoned, like hey, and then mm-hmm. you know where Connick's more s- the slimy, put together businessman who's like out to get like work. The we got to get it done now, now, yeah. now, now, exactly. type of thing. Yeah, so. so a question for both of you. Why do you think they called it excess baggage? I think they called it that. And that, first of all, in the most literal sense in the beginning of the film, Alicia Silverstone is excess baggage because Benicio Del Toro is driving the car without realizing that she's in it. So in the most literal sense, she is the excess baggage. But I also feel like it's about all of the stuff that we carry with us, like... Mm -hmm. Our auto dealer, our auto deal place, like blowing up and, you know, our dad not loving us. It's about like all of the Mm. crap we carry with us Mm. and learning to love and be loved in spite of it. That was beautiful. That's what I picked up because of the rom-com vibes. Yeah. And I, I, I I would say the, the same and, and also, um, just like burying certain parts of your past behind you too, in a Mm. sense, because. Mm -hmm. That whole uh, thing, because every all these characters are carrying some kind of baggage with them, you know, emotional, uh, spiritual, physical, whatever. You know, um, they carry this with them throughout the film, and then it's like they each kind of like slowly cast aside that baggage, which is kind of interesting, just from interacting with one another and going through this journey together. Yeah. Well, some people's baggage blows up, so that's unfortunate. <laughs> but at least they got rid of it, you know. Well, there's the physical part. There's boom. Yeah. <laughs> Literally and metaphorically. <laughs> I was wondering how we were going to tie humanity into this because we we normally tie humanity into our episodes at some point, and there you go. There's the humanity. Everybody that's watching this film, although it's lighthearted, and oh, she's kidnapped. Oh no, now he's got to deal with her. Oh, what are they gonna do? Mm-hmm. There's actually a really humanistic, uh, you know, uh, lesson here about. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, a message about, you know, everybody, everybody in this world has things they've gone through or will go through and they will carry with them for the rest of their life. And it's about kind of accepting that and, you know, moving on if that's the best thing for you or, you know, talking about that baggage with somebody else or whatever it may be, because everybody has things that they're going through or have gone through. I agree with that. And I think that I'm trying to tie humanity into streets of fire. It's really hard, but I'm going to get there. <laughs> the streets are on fire. The streets, the streets are, are on fire. fire. I don't know. It's something about like, I did actually really like the scene where he says goodbye to her backstage at the concert because I felt mm -hmm. like there was this, in some ways he was leaving his baggage behind of like, right. I'll always love you, but we're never going to be together again. And I feel like him rescuing her, even though at first it was for money, was kind of a way of making up for how he left her originally. So yeah, I feel like there's a little bit of like getting over oneself in mm. Streets of Fire. A little bit. Just a little bit. He also kind of becomes very selfless too as a hero because he's putting his life on the line for, at first, Ellen, but then the rest of the team as well. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, McCoy... Uh, the character, I think it's McCoy, right? McCoy? Yes, yeah. McCoy. The, the Amy the Madigan former, character? Yeah. yeah, the Amy Madigan character. She kind of represents a down-on-her-luck soldier, and he sees this, and he kind of pays it forward to her because, you know, gives her her cut. He kind of doesn't take his cut of the, the job and then kind of rides off into the sunset, in a sense. But he's done his good deed for the, the day. Or the, the mm -hmm. week or however long this is supposed to take place. He's got but, closure and she has closure in a way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting when he kind of reconnects with Ellen and they, you know, kiss and everything. You know, the rain is symbolic for washing away the, his past and he's got to mm. somehow yeah. confront it and then wash it away. And he does this because and he realizes there's no future with this woman. And he then like that's what kind of drives him to then you know kind of leave her and follow his own path type mm -hmm. of thing and what's the elliot what's the film we watched i'm just drawing a blank right now uh she mm -hmm. the, they meet in this like little little diner uh with the with the pie um oh, oh my blueberry night waitress yes no, my blueberry you. nights that my oh, blueberry nights too. Yeah, yeah, but that as well, yeah. Waitress the, and my blue. <laughs> so but many pie that, movies. Yeah. Yeah. American pie. American <laughs> pie. <laughs> very different than yeah. those two. Very, yes. very, and this one as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that one deserves its rating that it got. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, it was, it gives me those kind of vibes too. That at the end, you know, he comes back, but it's already moved. You're moved on to something else. You know, you need to continue on, not. Because they could have, they could have ended up, and he could have stayed with her, but he knew that that wasn't mm -hmm. going to be the option, and she did as well. Mm -hmm. So it was just like that, moving on, and that's life too, right? Mm -hmm. We meet people, people come to our life. They may stay for a while, they may stay for a day, and who knows, they may stay for the rest of our lives. It, it's all, it all just depends. Every relationship and every friendship and every person you meet is different. So there's another humanity thing. Hey, humanity! <laughs> Yay, humanity! Humanity? It's question mark? question <laughs> and that's how oh. we just ended <laughs> <No. Question mark. laughs> 
Can All we just right, start well. playing the Riddler's theme from the Batman? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I sound serious. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. On, on that note, uh, do, do we have any other outstanding outstanding uh, things we want to we want to cover here? Hmm. Got anything coming up in the near future on? Girl presses play. Well, the third season, which is all about superheroes, it is Celluloid Ooh. Crusaders, and it is coming out in the fall, probably September. I'll be posting about official dates and such in the near future, so we are currently recording that. Um, when does this episode come out? Uh, Friday. We'll be dropping it Friday evening. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. And then... As kind of a fun upcoming event, I will be doing an Oscars party tweet along where we will be sharing our themed foods from our Oscar parties, our best dressed and worst dressed list. We'll just be having a little Twitter Oscar party and that'll be starting 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Twitter. No need to RSVP. Just show up on Twitter, tweet some fun stuff and we'll tweet back or maybe retweet it. It'll be a fun time. Oh, nice. And where can we find you on Twitter and Instagram? You can find me Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Girl Presses Play. All righty. Well, thank you so much, Alana Rafferty, for being here today. Thank you for dissecting these two interesting films with us, uh, Streets (laughs) of Fire and Excess Baggage. Again, Alana Rafferty from New York-based performer, filmmaker, voiceover artist, podcaster, and you can catch her third season of Girl Presses Play coming out this fall. Thanks for having me, guys. This was really fun. Thank Ah, you for being here. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your evening, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You as well. Bye, guys. If you like this episode, make sure to follow us on social media at Film Detectives for further news and upcoming shows. Join us next week as we explore filmmakers from around the world. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.